got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the podcast, Additional History, Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and this is the podcast where I look up famous events from around the country and even the world in the newspapers of that time, and then I skip those articles and tell you what else was going on around the country and world on the exact same day. This week's famous date is a bit tricky. The event took place on May 29, 1953, but I couldn't find any mention of it in any newspaper until four days later on June 2nd, 1953. That surprised me because I expected it to be a bigger deal. On June 2nd, it was on the front page of hundreds and hundreds of papers across the country. But why the delay? Well, it turns out it took a runner three days to relay the information and then have it sent around the world. The headline from the Daily Herald out of Provo, Utah on June 2nd reads, Mount Everest conquered by British. Friends, today's famous event is the day Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay reached the top of Mount Everest, the first men to ever conquer the mountain. There wasn't any way to communicate from such a faraway remote location, so it took days for the good news to reach the press. And by the time it was printed, the amazing news shared front page headlines with another huge event. Yes, friends, there were two big stories sharing the front page that day. When I realized this, I debated whether or not to change the famous event to the other one and make the Everest climb one of the additional history stories instead. I mean, I would love to share the whole story about that here because it's fascinating, but I decided to keep it as I originally planned, and you'll get to hear about the other event in the first story of the day in a couple of minutes. At the time he climbed Mount Everest, Edmund Hillary was 34 years old and worked as a beekeeper in New Zealand. He would spend six months a year taking care of his bees on his farm, and six months a year climbing mountain peaks in New Zealand. Edmund never even saw snow until he was 16 years old, and he went on a school ski trip. During World War II, he served in the Royal Air Force and flew rescue missions over Fiji. After climbing Everest, he didn't stop his adventures and ended up climbing more peaks, racing jet boats, and going on snow tractor expeditions to the South Pole, just to name a few things. Sir Edmund Hillary passed away 12 years ago at the age of 88. Before the duo conquered Everest, it said that Tenzing Norgay spent more time on Everest than any other climber. The Sherpa desperately wanted to be the first to the top, and because of that, he joined every expedition he could, just in case. In 1952, the year before his successful expedition, he'd almost made it to the top with the Swiss expedition. It said that when Tenzing passed away in 1986, the procession following his coffin stretched a kilometer long. Now, as I said before, it was really hard to decide whether I should share the story of Hillary and Norgay climbing Everest as the headline of the day or as an additional history story. Since I decided to make it our famous headline, it's time to put it to rest, although I can go on and on about the actual expedition and even the widely accepted theory that George Mallory and Andrew Irvine actually summited in 1924, but died on their way back down. That's a whole other story I would love to tell you about, but not today. Instead, I'll tell you what else was happening the day newspapers all over the world announced that after many decades of effort, many expeditions, 
and sadly, many deaths, the tallest mountain on earth had finally been conquered. Okay, friends, I told you that my first story of the day would be the other famous story that shared the front page of newspapers all over the world. So let me share the other front page headline from the Daily Herald of June 2nd, 1953. It reads, Elizabeth II crowned queen in solemn rites. June 2nd, 1953 was the day of Queen Elizabeth's coronation. I didn't realize the events were so close together because first, relaying the message that the British expedition had made it to the top of Everest took a few days, and second, Queen Elizabeth's father had actually passed away more than a year before, and I guess I just assumed her coronation had taken place closer to his passing. Queen Elizabeth was born on April 22, 1926, the oldest child of King George VI. That means at the time of her coronation, she was just 27 years old. She married her distant cousin, Philip, in 1947, and had two of her children by the time of the coronation. Prince Charles was four years old at the time, and Princess Anne was just two. One thing Queen Elizabeth realized all those years ago was the importance of public relations. Because she wanted to get rid of some of the secrecy of the crown and be a public figure, she agreed to let her coronation ceremony be televised. We know from more modern events such as the weddings of her children and grandchildren, the births of her grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and the funeral of Princess Diana, just how much the media and the public want to know everything about the lives of the royal family. Former Prime Minister Winston Churchill didn't like the idea of the coronation being televised and actually criticized the Queen for allowing it. He thought broadcasting the event would, quote, cheapen the solemn event. But the queen did what she wanted. As soon as the ceremony was over, video footage of the event was put on Royal Air Force jets and flown around the world so her subjects in far-off places, and even those who weren't her subjects, like Americans, could see the event for themselves. It took the jet five hours to arrive in Canada, and the footage was immediately put onto other flights to places like Montreal, just two hours away. CBS and NBC both hired racing pilots who grabbed their copies of the event and took off as fast as they could for Boston. Both television companies were desperate to be the first to air the footage in the U.S. Sadly, I couldn't find out which pilot made it first. Journalists came from all over Great Britain and the world to record the special event. One of those journalists was a young woman working for the Washington Herald Times. Her name was Jacqueline Bouvier. And just three months later, she would become the bride of John F. Kennedy. Just like with other royal events, people packed the route that Queen Elizabeth would take on her way to Westminster Abbey. Excitement filled the air as everyone tried to catch even the smallest of glimpses of their newest monarch. Some people had been camped out on the sidewalks for days before the actual event, and by the time the morning arrived, two million people had come out. Even more people tuned into their radios all across the globe. Everyone watched in anticipation, but there was no doubt when her carriage, pulled by eight white horses, was first spotted because the crowd went crazy. Elizabeth smiled and waved to the crowd as her carriage took her past thousands and thousands of cheering school children along the Thames and then under Big Ben on the way to Westminster Abbey. Then the ceremony began. 
Now, I don't always quote directly from the articles, but in order to capture the event, I feel I need to quote directly from this article. It says, A rich tunic of cloth of gold fell softly over her body. In one hand she grasped the scepter, the ensign of power and justice, and in the other the rod with the dove, symbol of equity and mercy. Her eyes were fixed on the altar. Before her stood the Archbishop of Canterbury. High above his head he held the jewel crown of St. Edward, poised for an unforgettable second. Then, slowly, the golden circlet, its jewels gleaming in the candlelight, was lowered to the queen's head. God save the queen, and the ancient abbey where for 900 years Britain's monarchs have been crowned echoed to a mighty roar. God save the queen. As soon as the crown was set on Elizabeth's head, an army colonel, who had been on the telephone, ready to make the announcement, yelled, Fire! into the phone, and cannons were set off simultaneously at Hyde Park, Windsor Castle, and the Tower of London. There was a lot more stuff that led up to the actual crowning because the entire ceremony took two and a half hours, including moments where the Archbishop and her husband both pledged to serve and honor her. If you want to actually watch the coronation ceremony, I'll put a link to a video of it in the additional history headlines you probably missed Facebook group if you want to check it out. After the ceremony, Elizabeth switched out the big crown that had been placed on her head during the coronation for a lighter one, a crown with a measly 2,783 diamonds, not to mention the pearls, emeralds, sapphires, and rubies covering it. Anyway, then it was time to make the journey back down the five-mile parade route. The entire procession was two miles long. Now, as beautiful as the queen was that day, and as solemn as the ceremony was, the day wasn't completely perfect. You see, it was a very rainy day. It was even reported that it seemed to rain every single hour of the day. And because there were so many people packed into the area, the crowd eventually broke through a police barrier and onlookers started to get trampled. The article reported that by 1 p.m. that day, over 1,200 people had sought first aid and 25 had been hospitalized. Now, as you know, Queen Elizabeth is still alive and passed up her great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria, as the longest reigning monarch in history. This year marks 68 years since Elizabeth's father passed away and left the throne to her. It will be interesting to see how long her son, Prince Charles, will get to reign, if he even makes it to the throne at all. For my second additional history story today, I took an article from the Hope Star out of Hope, Arkansas. The headline says, Rosenberg's to die on June 18th. This article, of course, is referring to the convicted spy husband and wife team of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. As the article's headline suggests, they were put to death by the electric chair in Sing Sing prison in 1953. At the time of their conviction, sentencing and death, many people across the country believed the couple, or at least Ethel, were innocent and should be set free. Some of those same ideas still exist today. The Rosenbergs were both born in New York State during the First World War, and both were born into Jewish immigrant families. When they were young adults, both Julius and Ethel joined a group called the Young Communist League. With so much in common, the couple fell in love, and they were married in 1939. Julius supposedly left the Young Communist League in the early 1940s 
and didn't have anything to do with them anymore. But really, that was just a cover-up so nobody would know what he was really doing. You see, Julius was gathering a group of people, one by one, who had connections to government secrets. Julius himself was an engineer, and he recruited other engineers, scientists, and machinists. One of the people in his group was a man named David Greenglass. Now, friends, David wasn't just any man. David was Ethel's brother. And David didn't have just any run-of-the-mill job, either. Oh, no. David worked on the Manhattan Project. You know, the one where they developed an atomic bomb. Yep. From all these people, Julius and Ethel were able to gather up information and pass it on to the Russians. I guess you could say everything was going great for them. That is, it was going great until a British physicist, who was also giving secrets to Russia, was caught and started naming names that led to the Rosenbergs. When the Rosenbergs case went to trial, there wasn't a lot of evidence that proved, without a doubt, that the Rosenbergs were guilty and they had very little information about Ethel's involvement. The prosecution's case was almost completely dependent on two witnesses. First, a man named Morton Sobel, who had gone to college with Julius and been part of his spy group, and second, David Greenglass, Ethel's own brother. At first, David told authorities about working with Julius, but didn't say anything about his sister being involved. But then, after pressure from the authorities, he changed his story. Now he insisted that Ethel had been involved, that she was present at all the group meetings, and that she was the one who had typed up all of the information that they'd passed on to the Soviets. During the much-publicized trial, many people around the world voiced their opinions, and because Julius and Ethel had two little boys, they asked for the U.S. government to go easy on them. Remember, the Rosenbergs were Jewish, but even the Pope went to bat for them and asked for leniency along with Albert Einstein. They didn't think it was a good idea to sentence two young parents to death. People pled with President Truman and then President Eisenhower to intervene. But the presidents both chose to let their trial and eventual punishment play out in the courts. During their trial, Julius and Ethel pretty much refused to answer questions and chose to plead the fifth instead, but it didn't matter. In March of 1951, the trial ended. A decision was made and both Julius and Ethel were pronounced guilty and sentenced to death. Guilt, 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 guilt. Morton Sobel, Julius's old college friend, was sentenced to 30 years, but only served less than 18, and David Greenglass, the one who obtained and passed along the atomic bomb information in the first place, only served nine and a half years. Now, if you remember, the article that started this whole story said that the Rosenbergs would be executed on June 18th, but there was a last-minute stay of execution that ended up delaying the inevitable for the traitorous couple until the next day. So it was actually June 19th, 1953, that Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were both executed in Sing Sing Prison by the electric chair. For many years after the trial, people debated the guilt or innocence of the Rosenbergs, mostly Ethel. But in 1995, more than 40 years after the executions had been carried out, the NSA released information that proved without a doubt that Julius was 100% guilty. That was probably a relief to a lot of people who had been involved with the trial. But then it came out that David Greenglass, remember that's Ethel's brother, had changed his story during the trial to keep his wife Ruth out of jail so she could raise their kids. 
Yes, David changed his testimony and turned on his sister. At the trial, Ruth had also testified against her sister-in-law, possibly to make herself look better. David Greenglass later said, and I quote, I frankly think my wife did the typing, but I don't remember. My wife is more important to me than my sister. Wow. Morton Sobel, the other man convicted with the Rosenbergs, also insisted that he was innocent and that he shouldn't have had to serve prison time. But then in 2008, when Morton was 92 years old, he finally changed his story and confessed to working with Julius as a spy. By that point in time, most historians had decided that Ethel hadn't taken part in the espionage, and Morton agreed. He said she'd been aware of her husband's involvement, but that was as far as her guilt went. He said, quote, The only thing Ethel was guilty of was being Julius's wife. I find it interesting that Ethel, who may or may not have been involved, was dead, but the men who were highly involved were walking free more than 50 years later. Julius and Ethel's sons, Michael and Robert, were ages 10 and 6 when their parents were executed. The poor kids, who had nothing to do with their parents' crime, had to live their own nightmare because of it. They had even hand-delivered a letter to a security guard at the White House and asked him to give it to President Eisenhower, asking for clemency for their parents just a few days before the execution. The boys were fully aware of what was happening. They bounced around between guardians and spent some time in an orphanage but were eventually adopted by Abel and Anne Mirapol. After Morton Sobel's statements claiming their mother wasn't involved, the brothers started campaigning for her to be exonerated. In 2016, they delivered another letter to the White House, that time asking President Obama to clear their mother's name, but nothing came of it. David Greenglass died in 2014 at the age of 92, and Morton Sobel, the last remaining member of the spy ring, died on December 26, 2018, at the age of 101. Interestingly enough, with all of the people being named as communist spies during the Cold War, and especially during the 1950s, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg ended up being the only spies executed during the Cold War. So friends, what do you think? Was Ethel Rosenberg aware of what her husband was doing, and did she help him? Or was she innocent and wrongly executed? For my last additional history story of the day, I'm looking at a headline from June 2nd, 1953 in the Fairbanks Daily News Miner out of Alaska. This story isn't very long, but I chose it because the event was first reported in newspapers all over the country on May 29th, the day Hillary and Norgay actually climbed Mount Everest, but Fairbanks didn't print it in their newspaper until June 2nd. This headline reads, one dies as police chase robbers on busy Bronx streets. I liked this story for a couple of reasons. One, the journalist who wrote it used an impressive number of adjectives to describe the event. Don't worry, I'll share some of it with you in a minute. And second, it reads more like a gangster movie from the 1920s or 1930s than a real-life story from the 1950s. This article tells about a man named Solomon Salberg. Solomon owned a diner in the Bronx and would sometimes cash paychecks for his customers. Because of that, he had to keep a large amount of cash on hand at the diner so he wouldn't run out. One day he was heading home from the bank after getting $5,000 in cash. A man named Charles Jetter, who was 26 years old at the time, 
used to work for Solomon at the diner, and he knew exactly what Solomon's schedule was. In other words, he knew exactly when Solomon would be coming back from the bank with a large amount of cash. So, Charles gathered up three friends of his, and they made a plan to ambush Solomon and take his cash the next time he went to the bank. The article isn't very clear on how exactly they did it. It says they robbed him on his way home from the bank. My guess is that the four men were waiting at the curb, and when Solomon walked by, they jumped out of the car, surrounded him, stole his money, and then took off again. Luckily for Solomon, a policeman happened to be driving by, so he waved him down, told him what happened, and the cop quickly took off in pursuit of Charles' gang of robbers. While he was chasing down the car, he radioed for backup. Now, like I mentioned before, the entire article is written with the maximum amount of adjectives and descriptive words as possible. I'll read you some of the article here to show what happened next. It says, A siren-screaming, bullet-slinging column of police vehicles raced zigzag through three miles of Bronx streets yesterday to capture a quartet of bandits. The bandits themselves returned a fusillade themselves during the chase, some of the bullets crashing through the windshield of a police car. Isn't that a great description? Anyway, as the chase continued through the streets, more and more cops joined the pursuit until there were nine police cars and a motorcycle cop all chasing Charles and his gang. The gang was shooting at the cops and the cops were shooting at the gang. Thank goodness no innocent bystanders were hit by straight bullets, right? The chase finally ended when the bandits crashed into a car near the bridge that connects the Bronx to Manhattan. I don't know if the car crashed because the driver lost control or if Charles was driving and crashed when he got shot. You see, when all was said and done, it was discovered that Charles had been killed by a bullet through his head. For my advertisement of the day, I'm cheating a little bit. I actually had two other advertisements picked out to share, but then I noticed a teeny tiny article with just a few sentences in the Robesonian out of Lumberton, North Carolina, and it intrigued me. This is an announcement of sorts by the Associated Press about a new program opening in Salt Lake City, Utah. According to the article, there was a scarcity of good waitresses, so a local vocational school was starting a program for waitresses. The class lasted six weeks, and at the end, a waitress would know how to properly carry trays and how to lay them down in front of their patrons. Those are the article's words, not mine. To me, I would say on-the-job training might be a better bet. Friends, thanks for listening to this episode of my podcast. If you want to contact me, you can send a message to additionalhistory at gmail.com or join my Facebook group with the same name as this podcast. And as always... Come back next Monday for three more fun stories from a famous date in history on Additional History, Headlines You Probably Missed.